straight off the bat, when I'm meeting someone for the first time, I get them to give me a quick assessment of your life currently across six, seven different domains that shout out to you of your psychological health, your physical health, professional life, all these. And the order which people offer up that information also gives you an insight into what means something to them. And they'll give me that. And then we get to dive into something a bit more fun where I ask them, what is the darkest timeline you? So I'm a fan of community and they speak to the darkest timeline quite a lot in this. And we all have an idea of that person that breaks us down. It's We all break in slightly different ways as well, which is super fascinating for me to go through. And I'll offer people up the opportunity to play it like a character, really dive into what is the darkest timeline you? Is it someone that suffers with alcoholism? Do they just get drunk every single weekend? They can never progress. So then they hit a point they're going to be 35, looking back at all their friends who have now gotten married, they've not gotten anywhere with a job, they have nothing to their name because all they did was drink. That's an avenue that some people might take. It's not how I would fall down because I don't have the same pull to alcohol. I would end up being the simp. We try and create characters for who you would become. So for mine, we have the name of the simp of where I'd revert back to that nice guy mentality. Young men like us optimize our lives in a way that lets us achieve success and meaning. Come with me as I interview top performers and delve into key areas of life habits, finance, psychology, health, relationships, work, creativity, and business. I boil the ocean of men's advice into usable wisdom in this podcast to give you the answers. My name is Blake Bottrell, and this is the Distilled Podcast. My guest today is the British version of me if I had played a little bit more Call of Duty and a little less League of Legends. We connected on Twitter a couple of months back and have since had weekly check-ins that we now affectionately call the Taylor Swift fan club meeting. He left his job in finance to coach guys through their early 20s awkwardness after his own personal self-improvement journey. Today, we'll dive into some actionable steps for young guys who are feeling isolated or in a rut. Andrew Wilkinson, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. The, the best part of that introduction has to be the name we have dubbed uh, Taylor Swift <laughs> fan club meeting on a Sunday night, which I'm happy we are now getting to share with the world. So get ready for one hour's worth of love for Taylor Swift. <laughs> as, is, as is the same every mm-hmm. week. You mentioned something to me uh, after we hopped off the call last week that I would like to start with, which is like, how the hell do you track 12,000 data points for your life over the course of the year? And how did we never talk about this prior to you mentioning it in a WhatsApp message last yeah, week? Yeah, that is slightly crazy. So for anyone who doesn't know my background, I was a financial analyst in a former life. So that basically means I love Excel. So it's like Taylor Swift, and honestly, I think Excel is real, real close behind for me because I just... I don't know what it is. I think it's the logic-based system to it. I fell in love with it, and that became the bread and butter of how I run my own service, that I design these trackers, and I pull together about 25 different metrics of things that I do every day, from when do I go to sleep, when do I wake up, how much exercise do I do, uh, how much content do I consume, All honestly, all the way down to have I avoided all pornography, all bad habits? I currently have quite a streak going on some of these. And dating apps. Yes, I've been 
ensuring I stay very far away from dating apps because one of my core missions is to bring down Tinder. Um, we've talked uh, over the last few weeks for sure about Tinder, but we can, it's sort of a good jumping off point <laughs> of you. I wrote a newsletter probably about a month ago. You released a video like three days after that. We sort of didn't consult each other, <laughs> but had the same thing in the works. <laughs> But the, the one thing that like struck me from that video that I didn't put in my newsletter was the fact that uh, I guess 85% of the users on dating apps in the UK are guys. And if you like walked into a bar that was 85% guys, you would just walk the fuck out. Yeah. And yet people just decide that's the best that's place the to best meet place. girls. That's the best market apparently. And it's just simple supply and demand suggests that you should just run, run a mile away. I think it's one of Tinder's greatest skills that they've managed to hide the competition from you. Just a, a stark world out there and uh, seeing the amount of like all the fake shady shit. Oh, maybe I'll let you get into some of the, the grossness that is Tinder, i'm more than happy to do it i appreciate but... the platform for me to just rant about and because i've been doing this from before even my self-improvement days and let's call a spade a spade here i think there's just a bit of saltiness to the fact that 17 year old me did have no success on tinder but nevertheless there is a lot of other reasons why that they do something called seeding which is surprisingly seedy what they do, especially with female profiles, because they know men, men are the biggest draw, the biggest people on the platform. They will put in fake profiles that will match with you when you've just started on Tinder. And what this is, is to get you hooked on the, on the platform. You're able to then have a, a spike of dopamine to feel what it's like. It's like, oh my God, this pretty girl's match me. She looks great. I'm the man. This is amazing. And these profiles will send a couple of messages back and forth to you of just your general pleasantries and then they ghost, then they're done. So all that does is draw it out of, ma of a man that need to go after more because all these algorithms are designed to do is give you enough of a taste of what it could be like to get you to buy Tinder Premium because that's what they need. I'm just going to keep going down holes here. So... One of the main gripes I have with Tinder is it doesn't operate like a lot of other companies do. I use the example in the video of a food truck where if you want to buy a tasty taco, they want to sell you a tasty taco. And it's just like, yeah, great. Everybody's happy. But for Tinder, the point of you going on there is to meet somebody, whether that is for a night or whether it is for something long term like a marriage. Either way, you want to meet somebody. But if Tinder gives you that, then they lose you and another person on th off the platform. So your goals and Tinder's goals, they're just so far. There's such a disparity between them that it's a corrupt and it's a paradox. It's a corrupt company. It's a paradox of Tinder. And it just means that everyone that goes on there is miserable. And <laughs> I don't know if you've had much experience in your life with Tinder, but that is a bit of a summary from me of my hatred. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think the last stat was like two thirds of uh, people. All this is like a recent UK study from this summer, I think, 2023. Um, and it's like two thirds of people who are using dating app. Actually, let me just pull this. I've stat seen it. It's two thirds of people are already in a relationship. 
Well, no, uh, what's the... 70 per, 70% of dating app users feel depressed after oh, using Oh, I'm That's looking at another one. Part. I found it's... that up to two-thirds of uh, Tinder users. Yeah, I've got that stat too, for sure. <laughs> it's we uh, jumped in the gun on wild. This. Yeah. Oh, no. It's, yeah, not even... Like, it's just... Fuck, man. It's so bad. And like you said, they do as good of a job as they possibly can of hiding the fact that your chances are, like, slim to none. You went down the whole rabbit hole of how long it would actually take you to <laughs> like get a date on tinder it's like a, over a third of a year yeah. just like swiping for an if, average guy if you took it up like a a job like a side hustle you would still have to commit like over a third of a year <laughs> just to get a date it's incredible and having the people that operate on the platform even though they have a partner i was even discussing this with my sister today because why would you not chat to your own sister about tinder and she was telling me about one of her friends that had she had the app and then she found another one of their female friends boyfriend on the app when they were swiping around and i think it was only two months later that they broke up because he'd been cheating on her so i'm not going to say this is all <laughs> poor form from either gender here I'm thinking Tinder brings out the worst in us and it has reduced the amount of friction to play the grass is greener approach and disrupts relationships to their core. Uh, so obviously we're going on this whole rant about everything that's wrong with Tinder and you're working directly with a handful of guys that I'm sure are of the mentality that they're supposed to be on dating apps looking for, for girls. So obviously this so far has been a pretty compelling pitch to them as to why not to use them mm -hmm. but what are we sort of doing instead i love that you've asked me this question this week because i even have a personal anecdote which will fill in the gaps for this so one of my clients doesn't live too far away from me and in passing he said he'd watch one of my videos and i put the highest roi activities for being able to get a girl and become attractive and one of the ones that I said was, if you can go to salsa lessons and just do five of them, you're basically in the top 1% of echelon of men and it becomes so easy. So he thought it'd be a good idea to briefly mention that to me, not knowing that I'm like a compulsive planner. And I came back to him the next week with <laughs> it all scheduled. <laughs> And now I'm, I'm driving across <laughs> to his city and me and him are going to a salsa class there. And it gets even, even funnier, to be honest. So I chatted to him about this a few days later. And he's now spoken to his recently divorced boss at work and another one of his friends about what he was doing. And they've asked to come as well. So what has happened is now I feel like I'm like the the Pied Piper of single men, off we all go <laughs> to this salsa class <laughs> um, all together. So I'll be doing that this Wednesday. And this is one of, one of many alternatives that you could do to dating apps, but it is probably my favourite. And it is just, it's as basic as putting yourself out there. I recommend salsa because it is usually very female dominated. There's not many guys that turn up and you just get to learn to salsa with them especially if you can have a bit of skill as well so if they can see you in a domain where you've got a bit of competence oh my god i used to do this when i was at university and it was a1 for pre-night out antics yeah i mean that was uh 
I don't know that any of my friends ever had formal dance training of any kind, but I had a couple of friends that were uh, much better dancers than, than the rest of us at uh, even just at like house parties mm -hmm. or something. Not that we're uh, 18 anymore, <laughs> but uh, for all the guys out there that are 18 mm -hmm. and are going through this whole thing, like I can't imagine like going to dance classes and then just being able to have that as a skill as you're trying to date in your like early 20s. It's got to be a little bit of a cheat code for sure. 100%. What are some of the other things that uh, your guys are working on? So I am... <laughs> oh, go for it. No, go ahead. So nope. I actually am quite into daytime approaching. Like for me, that is one of the best, highest leverage ways that you can meet girls. I think it has the most likelihood of success. There's a weird taboo it feels around the idea of going up to girls, speaking to them in the day. But I've always done it. And I'd say I must have done over 500 approaches at this point, which I think I get outclassed by many people on the internet, but it's also not too bad of a number to have my own opinions on it. And I don't think I've ever had a particularly bad encounter with that, especially if you play by some really basic rules of just go up to girls in big open spaces in public in the daytime and just go over and be polite and say hi it's really doesn't matter too much where you go from there it's just the opening of saying hi and creating that connection and girls will like they'll light up and it it is a lot it's it's not easy to go from being the guy that's sat at home in your bed really struggling to get out he's only just made a tinder profile and you tell him oh yeah what you need to do is find that eight out of ten on the street and just chatter up and do all that stuff i appreciate it seems challenging but it becomes an exciting drug because as soon as you open up this world it's it's incredible because there seems to be no barriers to what you can do you do the first few and then you realize oh i used to be terrified of this i thought if i go up and said hi to that girl over there, I would be in prison by the end of the day. Like, something would go wrong. But that's never what my experience of bit has been. And I want to do away with the notion of pickup lines as well, because this is something that I would have put into a video one time of the line that I've used to get multiple girlfriends, multiple dates and everything. When I go up and speak to a girl, all I do is simply walk up, say hi... And then pause, because the pause and allowing everyone knows what to respond to that. If someone walks up to you on the street and says hi, you say hi back. And you can judge, based on her tonality, how open they are to the situation. If they just, like, barely even re register you, they're not, like, not interested in engaging, you're like, okay, I can see what this interaction is going to be. I don't need to proceed too much more with this. But if they seem sort of interested, a bit hesitant, you can proceed from there and just ask an interesting question. But the pause is important because the last thing someone needs when you're coming up to them on the street is if I just walked over to you on the street and I'm like, hi, it's great to meet you. Oh, I love your back. I love all this stuff. And it's just like, oh my God, right. Wall up, wall up. Who is this fucking nook? Why is he complimenting my shoes? What is he doing? All you need to do is go up and say two letters and then they have the opportunity to step into the conversation with you and it becomes something you're building together as opposed to a salesman-esque assault. So, this is something that I work I, with guys on as well. 
I'd never really considered the tonality of the the hello as the entry point to the conversation. This really fast. I like I've never I paid too much attention to pickup artist culture in the early 2010s when I was uh, very much not the person that I am today. Anyways, I that's a totally foreign concept to me, but it makes absolutely perfect sense on the face of it. I, I don't understand why that's never something that's come up before. I'm really unsure because it's, it's the same one that I've used, whether I'm in bars, whether I'm in public, whatever it is, it's that invitation and someone, one that everyone knows how to respond to because you're doing something so out of the ordinary. If you do an act out of the ordinary, then you say something out of the ordinary, 90% of girls are just going to be so weirded out by it. So you need to Keep it simple. So me and, uh, me and my business partner, we have an acronym for how we try and act in the world. And it's uh, KISS. Keep it stupid simple. And by and large, <laughs> it works quite well. We're trying to come up with some other one that we can tag that onto. I don't know if you've got an acronym for ASS, but like KISS ASS seems <laughs> something that will be easy to remember. Fair enough. I don't have anything, but when I come up with it, uh, I'll, I'll let you yeah, know. Send me a tweet. Yeah, I guess probably the, yeah, I will. The the framing of it being an invitation to the conversation versus the sort of pickup artist mentality of like me, 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 and you're just trying to like convince the girl into something and um, all that seemed sort of sketchy even while I was uh, trying to <laughs> Just educate myself. The, the image in your mind uh, you've already built feels sketchy. It's like it, if it's in yeah. your mind and it's bad, it's never going to come out any better. <laughs> yeah, I wish I had found... Uh, did you ever read Mark Manson's book, Models? I'm pretty sure it's on the shelf behind me. Uh, some, yeah. I think it's the red one go. right here. <laughs> I, I, I never read that book, but something tells me that I probably should have at that point. So Yeah, uh, yeah you sometimes just yeah. get lucky. It's weird. Some guys... It's weird to me. Some guys feel, and I mean, I was this way too for a while, that like just walking up and talking to a girl feels like going to war. And I say this because I, for whatever reason, remember this song by Owl City, and it's called Be Brave, mm -hmm. and it's a five and a half minute long song about just trying to get this girl's phone number <laughs> and like talking to her in a coffee shop. And the song is called Be Brave. Mm. 80 years ago, 18-year-olds were going to die yeah. across the channel from you. <laughs> and now we're talking about... Can you speak to Just walk up to a girl and ask for her number. Yep. Yeah. And I would still hazard a guess. So I'm going out on a limb here. I think if we plucked one of those people off the beach, I wonder if they would still be scared to speak to the girl. Because we... <laughs> it's a bold claim it's a bold claim and i'm british so maybe i can get away with making it but <laughs> i've seen it a lot of times where there was these sort of professional pickup artists they speak because well they're more expensive so they get more high high-end clients where they would have guys that were prof professional like jet fighter pilot people that went off to war that still had this trepidation around that girl over there that, oh my God, no, I can't speak to her. What if she rejects me? What if everyone sees? What What if, what if, what if just starts running and playing and playing? It's wild. And then the sort of consequence of this is that, uh, or I guess whether it's a, a cause or a consequence is, is sort of up for debate. 
but then you walk into sort of the nice guy trap of of just letting people walk all over you and uh you end up in this like sort of limbo situation that you never really wanted to be in and thankfully i i wandered my way in and out of that but i know a lot of other people uh who wandered in and never wandered out uh and it's it's a tough one. You, I, you had a line somewhere in one of those uh, videos a couple of weeks ago that was just something to the effect of you decided to sacrifice who you could be for the thought of what they wanted you to be yeah. or something like that. Yeah. And I just heard that line and I was like, okay, that that's that one hurts. Yeah. I think we, I call it a death by a thousand concessions. And I'm going to attempt to coin that myself. And that's something that, like, nice guys, and like, I'm fully putting myself in this camp. I've lived as the nice guy. And it's the concession upon concession of who you are as a person. And it's not even to sort of you think you, who you think you should be. It's who you, who you think they think you should be. So it's like two steps removed from this point, And it's, is never going to internally satisfy you. You're just conceding, conceding till you're like a husk of your own identity. There's nothing of you that really shines through anymore. And that's just so damaging to walk around as. And I think that's something that I know I've spent time as myself in my own life when I didn't feel good about myself. The main thing the nice guy does, he lies, whether that's like a lie of action or if it's a lie of just blatantly something that he's spoken out. He lives a lie. He tries to friendship his way into a relationship and friendship his way into sex. And he also lies to his male friends because he'd happily betray them if the option of maybe getting with a girl was on the cards. And that's what he does. It's the identity that he holds is paper thin and he's given a thousand concessions because it isn't one individual one. It's the hundred things he lied about. He lied about how much he could lift that time, how much he spent going on holiday, the places that he's been, how he felt, the girls that he's been with. It's just all these 1,000 concessions have buried him so deep. So, yeah, jumping off the lying thing, I think this is in Sam Harris's book. It's called Lying. I've heard it a couple places, and I'm pretty sure it gets attributed back to this book. And it's just the thought that... Um, if you are a compulsive liar or even not a compulsive liar, but someone who lies on occasion, it doesn't ever allow you to truly be calm or at peace because the problem with lying is that it makes it so that you, you can never fully turn your brain off mm -hmm. because if you ever fully turn your brain off, there's a chance that you can forget what lie you've previously told. So in order to like keep up the appearance, whether it's the girl that you're talking to or your guy friends or whoever it is, you have to constantly be able to remember all of these lies. And as you say, if you get up to a hundred things that you have to lie about to this girl that you're trying to impress or whatever it is, that's like an unconscionable amount of uh, weight that you put on yourself to remember all of these things on a consistent basis. Yeah. Truly, it's the avatar that you create who exists in your stead, and you need to constantly keep that projection going. So it's almost like a projection that's right on your skin of this is this is who I'm telling the world I am, and I need to keep up that projection. As you say, it must take 
an incredible toll on you on a psychological level to think that you can never let your guard down. I speak often about how Jordan Peterson has an amazing line that he's done countless hours of therapy with people where they've dug deep into all the biggest mistakes of their lives, where where their lives have come completely undone. And every time he digs back, it's like it sources a lie. There was that original source lie that caused the ripple effect for their life to fall apart. And one of the most terrifying things that he's ever said, and he said it's terrifying to him, is that he's never seen a lie that hasn't come back to bite somebody, basically. There's never been a lie that hasn't come out, whether maybe it didn't fully reveal itself to the wider world, but then you had to bear that psychological toll of the lie you told, and then you took that out on your partner because you were having to have this hold this lie together. And we developed this metaphor of every lie you tell, you cast a boomerang out into the world, and it's coming back, you don't know where, you don't know when, and it speaks to your idea that you can't shut your brain off completely because at all times there's a boomerang going out into the world. Maybe it's that guy you met at a party where you tried to big yourself up, you said you were an amazing forex trader, whatever it is, and now he's just turned up at this next party two years down the line and he's coming over to speak to you in front of all your friends and you know damn well you've just given an illusion of who you were to this guy. What's what's the moment that you sort of knew you were a nice guy? Oh, what question. Um, oh, I give some horrendous examples in the start of the nice guy video, I think. So the ones that I use at the start of there is that younger me was the guy that was cycling around town to all the girls that text him, just like taking sweets and stuff to their house just because they're hungry. And I think the highlight one I put in the video is the nice guy in the early days of university. There was a girl I liked and I let a guy sleep with her in my own bed. And I was like, after that, I think I knew I needed basically just help. I was like, oh, this is not good. Um, you're a pushover. You're an absolute pushover. You have no backbone. You can't stand up for yourself. And if you continue down this road, nothing good will ever happen to you because anything good that could ever happen will just simply be taken because you're unable to protect what is yours. How much of getting through that is being able to change your like macro or micro environment? I'm very big on environment change. I, I think that's a key thing to pick up on that. I'd be really fascinated to see what percentage of our identity is made up by who we are and what we think we are versus just the environment we operate in. That I think we take you and we drop you in the middle of Africa for six months and I think you become an incredibly different person. And it's, yeah, there'll be some things that remain, but I think we'll be extremely limited in that amount. Maybe maybe 10% remains. And maybe that's the true you, which is something, it's a concept I've always considered. I don't know where you stand on this, that if you want to find out who you are, if you go through multiple different environments, ideally sort of like five different environments, and then you pick the commonality of what remains amongst all five, would you say that what that's what you truly are? That feels like as good of a, a proxy for finding out who you truly are as anything else I could come up with. I don't know. It's hard because 
I don't even know how much commonality you'd be able to find in between those five or six places. Everybody's so adaptive to the environment that they're in. I have a hard time believing that you'd carry over a ton that aren't like very deeply held core values. And even those can sometimes be changed by the environment you're in. Right. Yeah, I think so. so. The environment, especially the people you're around with are, are power to conform and more, I'd say, uh, more especially our power to be not different. I was watching the recent Chris Williamson, Stephen Bartlett podcast, which I highly recommend. And they were speaking to the two things that sort of people don't want to be. And it's different. They don't want to stand out at all. And I think our power of conformity can work in our favour or it can work against us. If we want to hang out with a bunch of guys that all they want to do is eat Cheetos, play Fortnite, oof, that's who you're going to become. That is straight up who you're going to become. And I think for me, a big powerful change I had was moving to Eastern Europe. I lived there for three months and it was impossible to be a nice guy there. I think if I'd have been a nice guy there, I would have been killed. They've got hangovers from the Soviet times over there. So it was, uh, yeah, sink or swim kind of time. I remember getting threatened in the streets. Uh, <laughs> there was a lot. And it just, it forced that change out of me that I managed to carry back with me to the UK. I, I'm really proud I did that because sometimes you find changes that you don't manage to adapt into your core self. And that's really disappointing. You, you might have experienced this in the past. Is you've lived somewhere and there was a part of you that you truly love, but for some reason you just couldn't incorporate that quite into your identity when you came home. Like I've definitely had that. I think there's certain environments when I've been more extroverted and I would love to have kept that, but not always. However, this trip to Bulgaria, I think, really did solidify a bit of a backbone with me. Yeah, I found sort of similar thing when I went to Thailand, certainly the change of environment. I was definitely not in any way the same person uh, coming back than when I left. I relate to the idea of not being able to necessarily adapt some of those things into the identity. It's weird. I feel like the trip to Thailand did more to change sort of my macro worldview than it did necessarily to change some of my internal identity things that I was struggling with. Mm. Um, and just sort of the contrast of the environment change and seeing people who are quote unquote, less fortunate than, than us, um, still be some of the happiest people I've ever seen in my life. Um, it really just sort of framed a lot of things different for me. And so I had a much greater appreciation for, um, especially the life I live came in, coming back. So, um, I think if there was one thing for environment change that, uh, really got me, I think it was just sort of a gratitude and an appreciation for what I had versus, um, sort of identity change and, and wrapping all that up coming home. That's really cool, man. And did you get the effect that people often speak about that you don't know your own country until you've left it to be able to look at it from that outsider's perspective? Was that something you were able to tangibly do with such disparity between the two countries of sort of Canada and Thailand? Um, I mean, I feel like I, well, I thought, I, I guess I thought I had a pretty good idea of what, uh, my country was and um sadly my country's 
changed a little bit in the last 10 years. Some people call that good. Some people call that bad, whatever you want to do with it. But um, yeah, I, I certainly sort of definitely got a different perspective. Um, again, it just comes whole, everything comes back to the whole gratitude thing. I think the first time I started doing like a gratitude journal was when I was in my apartment in Thailand living there. I was there for like seven months and I had a, the same apartment for about six out of the seven months. Um, so it was nice to like, I didn't feel like I was traveling. I felt like I truly sort of like lived there, um, for a good amount of time. So it let me sort of be locally ingrained in some of the culture that was there and, um, had the same group of friends for the most part while I was there, worked, uh, same group of hostels for the whole time, got to do a fair amount of traveling around the country and a couple of little trips out of the country and here and there. But, um, for the most part, uh, was really just a life-changing experience well, for sure. For someone, and the one, sorry, I, I, this, <laughs> I was going to ask the, uh, for anyone that might be listening and for myself, especially I, I've never been to Thailand and I bet a bunch of people would never go. So I was almost curious to what would be the one thing that you took from that experience that if you could give that to everyone, a piece of knowledge, even if down to there's this amazing restaurant, what would you, what would you offer up? I'm curious. Um, Thailand, Thai people are sort of notorious for being happy. And it, what I was going to say sort of before uh, you got into asking this question is that this is a, an older quote, and I'm not sure where it came from, but um, somebody said at some point that sort of a smile is the same in every language. So it was funny to just be over there and have trouble navigating sometimes. And as long as you could like smile and, and make it that you were enjoying yourself and, and whatever people were more than happy to help you stumble through whatever it was you needed. Um, people were more than willing to go out of their way to, uh, even put themselves, um, not at a dis uh, disadvantage is the wrong word, but, um, uh, just go out of their way mm. to help you basically. So, um, I, I'm going to make it a point to get back to Thailand. I really want to take Emily to Thailand at some point. Um, just the people are so friendly. Uh, some amazing beaches, just the, the, I don't know, man, it's, it gets a lot of, uh, bad press sometimes I think for a lot of the expatriates and some of the sex tourism oh, stuff. The full moon party um, is one of the things that jumps to mind. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, definitely. That's the, uh, the, there's a, an island called Koh Penang that's sort of in the Gulf of Thailand. And once a month they have, uh, what they call the full moon party and it's on this beach in Thailand and it's all night long and it's exactly what you expect it to be. And it's everybody from all the 18 year old spring break kids that you would expect all the way up to the. 60 something expats that live there and the entire beach is lined with bars and it uh it was certainly an experience i went a couple of times while i was there um we had a hostel that was on the island uh and i was there shooting a handful of uh photo and video content mm -hmm. so managed to make it to the the party a couple of times managed to not make it once after i uh crashed my motorbike that's a story for a different day but um i was thought you was, were gonna uh, do from too much alcohol me... but apparently not or maybe both <laughs> no had me lying up lying up in a bed for uh 
little bit more than a week, I'm sure. Oh. Didn't have to go to the hospital, thankfully, but mm. uh, it was uh, not a fun experience. So, Congrats on being able to ride, ride a motorbike as well. I do not have that skill. <laughs> motorbike is a strong word. It's a Vespa. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even that. Uh, uh, but yeah. I was, uh, once again, in a former life, I worked for Pizza Hut, which should be a universal brand that everyone's aware of. And in protest to them trying to turn me into a delivery driver, they sent me to do um, the training to be drive on the Vespas. To t- and it was like, this is England in Sheffield, which is like the northern part of England where it's cold as hell. It was December. And I deliberately failed the test, <laughs> which runs so <laughs> counter to my narrative as a person that I'm like the guy that strives, the guy that runs marathons. And the one time I just like, I just flunked it. I just deliberately flunked it so they couldn't send me out. And I just got to stay in cushy making pizzas, just like throwing some pizzas around and earning the same money. What's the lesson that's taken you the longest to learn over the last decade or so? My business partner's voice is in my head at the minute because he gets to prob he sees he definitely sees the worst in me. I was wondering if, and definitely not in an outward direction, he sees the worst of me internalised at myself. And I, maybe he sees the best of me. I, I will have to ask him for confirmation on this. But I think the lesson that I probably am taking the longest to learn is, it's a really simple one. It is, it doesn't need to be perfect. It just needs to be done. And I have this with every YouTube video I make. I put immense pressure on myself because I know I can envisage a product and a video and all the perfection that it could be, but I know I don't currently have the talent to pull it off. And this causes such a problem that there was at least one. In one of the videos, I had to cut out a bunch of footage because there's a mini breakdown. (laughs) Like there is just a mini mid YouTube video breakdown where I go from just trying to talk to just like sitting on the sofa off to the side. You can sort of see part of my face on the camera and I'm just like, I I have gone somewhere. I think like my eyes had just gone black. It was not a good look. I think this of all my flaws is probably my biggest. It's the pressure I put on myself to deliver, which deliberately impedes the actual product that I end up putting out and it's one that really having people around me has always been the best solution having Will who helps me out with this so much that he does just remind me it's like it's the best video you can put out now it doesn't it doesn't have to be something because this is what we're exposed to now we see the Chris Williamson's of the world the Alex Hormozies and everything they can pull off and you're they're trying to reverse engineer it and you can almost see how they're doing it and it makes you believe you can and then you put yourself in front of that camera and you get four words in and you just flail and it's like what is wrong with you man like you know you can do this you know what you're after but put in the hours put in the hours get the experience and understand one of my favorite lines from the recent podcast of Chris Williamson was um the slow way is the fast way because the slow way is the only way. And I'm just like, yeah. So of lessons, it'd be that pressure we put on ourselves to deliver something close to perfection and the impacts that that has. Yeah. And I think one of my favorite um, sort of quotes around that too is Lauren Michaels um, 
is the uh owner director producer he's the producer of snl mm. um oh. and he says that the show doesn't go on because it's ready the show goes on because it's 11 30 which Ooh. to your point is just yeah. as long as you're putting deadlines on yourself um and you say like this is the best i can do in this amount of time uh that's when you sort of playing inside the box is sometimes better than playing outside the box for all of the faults of perfectionism and and whatever other problems that comes with i think it's a, at least good to have that as a starting point and be able to work from there uh versus the sort of external locus of control and like victimhood mentality that a lot of people seem to subscribe to now mm -hmm. and I, I bring this up to sort of talk about some of your coaching clients and i would imagine that at least a majority of them subscribe to this idea that there has to be something better out there for me this is why i'm reaching out to get help from somebody else they have that internal locus of control and and want to do things to better their life do you see that coming up a lot or or how does that sort of play out as a mentality among some of the guys that you're working with yeah i truly see that that i think there's a reflection between any coaching and any kind of therapeutic process like that you actually want to have to improve yourself no one can make that decision for you and it is the bravest step usually to reach out because that's you admitting to yourself the place that you're in isn't good that my scenario right now is not acceptable for me and that's a terrifying thing for anyone to have to accept but then to also on top of that have the self-belief that there is a better version of what I could become out there there's something that exists because people are terrified to do that with every idol is a judge so as soon as we set up something in front of us that is this bright shiny thing that we could be well we have the opportunity to strive for it or be blinded by it where we see it as something that just completely can completely consume us and put us down because we're not good enough. Can you walk me through, um, and more for the audience, what like a, a discovery call looks like oh, sure. with one of the guys that you're working with? Sort of where, where the first sort of actionable steps come from and, and how we go from this place of pain that you're talking about to um, having a plan in place, or at least a preliminary plan in place to start to make it better. So... I tend to hit this really simply with three three questions. The first one's relatively mundane, but then I have a lot of fun with the second two. So straight off the bat, when I'm meeting someone for the first time, I get them to give me a quick assessment of your life currently across six, seven different domains that shout out to you of your psychological health, your physical health, professional life or these and the order which people offer up that information also gives you an insight into what means something to them and they'll give me that and then we get to dive into something a bit more fun where I ask them what is the darkest timeline you so I'm a fan of community and they speak to the darkest timeline quite a lot in this and we all have an idea of that person that breaks us down. It's, we all break in slightly different ways as well, which is super fascinating for me to go through. And I'll offer people up the opportunity to 
play it like a character, really dive into what is the darkest timeline you? Is it someone that suffers with alcoholism? Do they just get drunk every single weekend? They can never progress. So then they hit a point, they're going to be 35, looking back at all their friends who have now gotten married. They've not gotten anywhere with a job. They have nothing to their name because all they did was drink. That's an avenue that some people might take. It's not how I would fall down because I don't have the same pull to alcohol. I would end up being the simp. We try and create characters for who you would become. So for mine, we have the name of the simp of where I'd revert back to that nice guy mentality and just be sort of like stuck living in my hometown, having friends that don't respect me, no girlfriend or a girlfriend that doesn't respect me and getting walked over in life. And some people, it's the waste man, which is spend all day watching content, all this kind of stuff of just like, what is the darkest time on you? And that's like, cool, okay. Let's look at the darkest time on you, all his habits, all his behaviours. That's what we need to avoid because it's all well and good having the bright, shiny thing in front of you of who you want to be. But that ain't going to be what gets you out of bed. Like those cold Tuesday nights when like you just decided that you were going to go for a run, that you were going to break the habit, you were going to go for a run or even a cold shower. It's like, it's all well and good being the person that wants a six pack, but motivation often comes from not wanting to be the darkest timeline you. So we take that and then we play the reverse game. What's the brightest timeline? What is the most idealised future that you could potentially offer for yourself? What is your dream physique? What is your dream status in friendships? Would you like more friends? What would be professional? And then from these three positions, we've got, okay, so we know where you are now, where you don't want to go, and where you want to go to. And I start to build out a tracker based on the habits that you have already listed of the things we want to avoid. Okay, cool. So you've got quite a bit of a pornography addiction, right? We're going to start simply tracking how often are you using it? When is it worst? What, what is driving this? And awareness of it always tends to start clearing it up. But it's not that fun having to come and talk to someone every single week about how you've watched porn six times. So <laughs> it really helps with the process. And then simultaneously, we're starting to work on, well, what would you like? What would you like to have in your life? Maybe you would like some more friends, which was a way more frequent request for what people wanted in their life than I expected when I started this. And I built out this social tracker of allowing people to make what I call a social gambit. And to me, that is any time that you reach out in any way, shape or form to try and build a connection. Maybe it's texting someone that you haven't spoke to for two years to be like, hey, how's it going? Maybe it's when you go to the gym, you say hi to that guy that's doing the press next to you and ask if he needs any help. How many social gambits are you doing? How many opportunities you open up to create this? And your actions are what change your world. So my process for me is I get people in, we determine the identity he wants to embody, we break down what the habits are of that identity, and then we start to track him a bit against that. And that's where all the tracking metrics come in. And it's it's one I do myself. It's like I've done my own program for a year and a half and it's turned me into the closest, I'd say, to my like optimal version of myself. I'm off the back of a hundred days no alcohol after being a fairly party boy <laughs> prior to that. And it it's a simplistic system of just 
understanding who you are because the most important question to me isn't what do you want it's who do you want to be I think what you want is too open-ended as a question is is too confusing but if I ask you who do you want to be you can give me a feel for that you already intrinsically know a few things about yourself of who you would want to be in this world yeah I'm, I'm surprised that you talk about yourself turning into the simp instead of turning into uh troy delivering the pizzas to the oh. party that's on fire <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that'll, that'll be a deep cut for some people but <laughs> yeah um, i don't yeah i mean i think uh <laughs> i think uh the more friends is is a big one for people and and you and i both know the whole story of uh, this sort of male friendship recession that's happening right now. And it's, it's starting to get a little scary. So, um, just, I I'm glad that you're working with guys who understand that and, and are working towards that. And, uh, it's, it's exciting to see that, that people have recognized that in themselves and, mm. uh, are starting to take some steps towards that. Yeah. And I think, any step is good. Even yourself, you have a Discord group where you can just bring guys together. And for me, if I had a client that was talking about needing to reach out, I'd be like, look for Discord groups. I appreciate the online connection is not perfect. And there does need to be a semblance of something in real life. If like they live nearby, fair enough, in certain situations like ourselves, a podcast works for us. But if you're only able to speak to people online, it's going to really limit your ability to feel that sense of connection because the video I released recently, it breaks down what I believe is the core fundamental component of male friendship and that is shared experience. And that is the ability to have you and another man shoulder to shoulder experiencing something because we bond shoulder to shoulder. We don't bond face to face. We need to be accomplishing something together and it is possible to do that online, but it's so much more powerful and effective in person. Yeah, and that is definitely played out sort of in my own life. Um, to your point of online, whatever, some of my best friends for the majority of my life were the people that I was able to like sit online after school with and play video games or... Um, even once I got into sort of the esports writing world, it was all the people that uh, were the people that I was playing games with on a regular basis or talking to in a Discord group or a Skype call or whatever it was at that point. Like going through all of that and like having those other people, other guys to do things with, um, it's, it's much more than just texting and keeping up with somebody. There needs to be that activity that's happening together at some some stage even if it's just uh like i said being able to play video games or something not that that's something that we're <clears throat> openly advocating for all the time but it's uh for people who are looking for a baby step stop playing single player games and uh pick a multiplayer game where you might be able to find some friends yeah there's a reason they're so successful they do make a very good substitute for the real life thing it's I have amazing memories of playing Call of Duty Black Ops, the first one. Um, I call that one out because that's the one I was best at. And uh, we just, we would go on every night after school, we'd go on and we would crush it on domination and it would be amazing. And you build those bonds together and it is 
meant to be just a substitute for the real thing and it's close it is close and i think for someone that hasn't got anything going on to multiplayer games yeah because you'll you'll at least learn the communication skills i'd say that you'll understand how to communicate as part of a team there'll be some non-verbal communication you're going to miss out on but at least that ability to talk to people about objectives and do things and then understand that's how you construct a friendship because I watch some of the friends, especially from the world of finance that I used to be in, where their friendship groups are dwindling and it's because their idea of doing things is maybe it's going to the pub and drinking, but not a lot else. There's no there's no external tribal aspect to it, isn't to go to the gym. I love going to the gym with people. I think that's just the easiest way to make friends. But it doesn't have to be the gym. It can be going... People like hiking. I don't like hiking that much because it's a bit slow for me, but people like hiking. You get the sense of accomplishment. You've gone up the hill. You can feel good. You can come back and it's like, yeah, winner. It just... It doesn't work to be able to, as you say, send a couple of texts. Liking Sam's photo on Instagram doesn't do the job. And I, I, I can't hammer home this point enough that it is not enough just to have that sort of like back and forth thing. Because it's me and you could have been like that if we'd have just sent some tweets back and forth with each other and then it'd been just like, that's all it is. But instead, you reached out and now we try and build stuff together. We have big conversations where we're actually having something of a shared experience and trying to build towards something greater. What was the advice you needed when you were trying to get out of the uh, out of the first stages of your sort of self-improvement transformational journey that you didn't necessarily get but know now once again if I could give one message back to myself oh I've got two so I might cheat your question and go with two one is not going to happen overnight it isn't I'm 10 years deep right now and I've still got a bunch of distance to go and I think at that point you look at all these videos online of like, oh, I transformed in like two weeks and now I'm a turbo chad and it's just like, no, simply that isn't how it works. And the other one, what would I give to myself that I think, I think you really needed would have been to understand on focus on internal, that when I initially set out, it was from very much that kind of I'm going to transform my physique. I'm going to look different so everyone's going to treat me better. And it's like, oh, if I just look this way, I'm going to feel so much better. The issue is, it's in part, there's a little bit of truth. You do get treated a bit better once you've physically transformed. But if you only focus on that, a judgment day is coming. It is coming for your ass because you're going to be going around and getting treated well and then you're going to get caught out because you've not done any of the internal work. And as you can see, this is someone speaking from experience. <laughs> I did the transformation. I did the physical one. And then I got the girlfriend. And I got all the things. And then <laughs> she broke up with me and I just crumbled because... <laughs> I hadn't done the actual work to be like, oh yeah, I need to actually quite like myself. I need to actually have a foundation here. I need to be a guy that isn't a nice guy, one that tells the truth, one that has solid relationships with friends and all these things because we can only keep up the charade for so long. And a reminder to anyone that I know it's tempting to just 
look on YouTube, I don't feel good about myself, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do the physical transformation, I'm going to get the six pack, and now everything will be all right once I've got the six pack. No. <laughs> I, it is good, don't get me wrong, it's awesome to have a six pack, but if you don't do the work that's necessary on yourself internally, then it's almost all for naught, because then all you've done is set yourself up for a greater height to fall from. I don't know if that resonates with yourself or anyone that you know, you know, but that's personally something that I would have sent back to myself. For sure. You got to do the internal work. This uh, whole podcast is going to sound like we're simping for Chris Williamson, but he's brought up on his podcast a couple of times in the last uh, few weeks that I've been listening. He talks about the whole uh, concept that in the movie, the Rocky montage is 30 seconds, but in real life, it's like 10 years. Uh, mm -hmm. So yeah, to your point of, of having to put in the work and the internal work over time to like make yourself better. No one wants to tell you that it sucks, um, or at least doesn't suck, but is uncomfortable. Um, but that's where the growth comes from. The growth comes from the suck. Yeah. Learning to love <laughs> Nobody suffering. clipped that out of context. <laughs> Uh, I, I will clip that actually. <laughs> that <was what's> <laughs> oh man! Yeah, the oh, moment you get a million good. subs, right, I'm dropping man. that. Well, I feel like that's. Uh... <laughs> I don't think we're getting a higher note than that. To finish. Uh, no, I mean that's that seems like as good of a note to end on as any for sure, but. Uh... Yeah, man, I appreciate you coming on. We'll do this again uh, for sure a couple times in the future. And uh, we have these calls every week. So uh, I'm sure yeah. we can riff some of them into uh, other fantastic podcasts and give some people the insights that uh, we've come to discover and, and pass those along to other people that could be in need of them. So um, before we hop off here, uh, if anybody wants to find your stuff or your coaching, where can we send them? Go to Honest Improvement on YouTube where we put out videos, well, we attempt to put them out once a week, but you will see that we are not <laughs> amazing at doing that. However, I think they are really valuable, and if they connect with you, then you can reach out to me at honestimprovement.co.uk, and I've experienced working with a whole range of guys at this point, so there's not anything that you will be coming to me that I'd find unusual, <laughs> put it that way, so... I've loved being on the podcast. This was actually my first official podcast. So thank you for this introduction to the world. <laughs> nice. Absolutely, and man. Shout out to Taylor Swift to you know, <laughs> round this out. Perfect. All right, Love man. It. I'll talk to you next week.